I tell congregations the good news about me is that I'm not normally long-winded. The bad news is I'm not normally normal. So now you can blame that on the Lord. I want to speak a word. This is not, to my knowledge, relative to the message God's put on my heart for you this morning. We love tradition. Tradition is beautiful. The unfortunate thing about tradition is that it freezes us at our present level of achievement. I want you to hear me carefully. Tradition freezes us at our present level of achievement. Tradition, good as it is, can only turn its eyes on the past. It cannot look to the future. If it does, it ceases to be tradition. The reason we like tradition or habit is that it removes the necessity of decision-making. The reason that we can drive from our house to the office and pick out among several routes, all of them perhaps equal, one route and habit or tradition keeps us going that way is because when we get in our car, turn on the ignition, there is no decision to be made. Now, please stay with me. There is no decision to be made. Decision-making requires mental energy. Therefore, it's simple just to go by habit. Now, I have no complaint with tradition. Christian tradition is beautiful. There are traditions that occupy every part and aspect of our lives. They're comfortable and we enjoy them. But the fact is, they lock us in, and I repeat this, they lock us in at our present level of achievement. And they make no allowance for change and for aggression or progression into the future. God is not looking to the past. God is looking always to the future the culmination of all things and the climax of all human history is where his eye is focused in our behalf. And I share that with you because I've been preaching now this year 51 years. I'm 27 years old. But in all seriousness, when the Holy Spirit began dealing with me in... 1977 to change. The reason that I had such a severe crisis with the change, theologically and religiously, was because I felt uncomfortable deviating from my personal tradition. As long as I obeyed tradition, I did not have to make decisions. I could stay in that comfort zone of it. But the astonishing thing was when the Holy Spirit came and he kept pressing me for radical change. Radical change. And when that radical change finally was in effect uh, 
dashed like a cup out of my hands and smashed and the choice and decision was no longer mine I discovered like the woman with the alabaster box who came to Jesus that once it was broken on the floor only then could its real purpose be fulfilled and that was the releasing of what was within it tradition beautiful as it is is like that alabaster box it is beautiful it keeps the content safe and secure but prevents them from fulfilling God's designed and intended purpose so and I was not aware I was going to share this word with you at all let's ask the Lord continually God keep my eye open and my heart sensitive to identify those things that keep me bound and keep me restricted now that's sermon number one we'll take up another offering listen carefully to the word and I don't want you to turn there because you'll recognize the the place of it faith comes by hearing not by reading I'm being facetious of course but hear the word for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out Abba Father the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God most powerful verse we can find anywhere that assures us that we personally may know that we have genuinely been born again Wesley in his ministry shook all England with this verse and because he preached this verse the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and people all over England became ablaze with the holy truth that they did not have to wait to the judgment they did not have to wait for eternity to know whether or not they were born again but that the Holy Spirit himself would bear witness to their spirit not just to their heads not just because their grandparents said so but there they themselves personally could have that inward witness of the Holy Spirit that they were children of God and you may remember that one dear brother who heard Wesley and got so excited about the fact that he knew he was born again and he knew he was saved and went out everywhere preaching that and telling that became such an annoyance that they press ganged him kidnapped him put him on a ship and sent him to sea now I don't want that to happen to you but I would like for all of us to become so stirred by the reality of the Word of God and by the reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that all hell shakes when we speak out God's Word hear this for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God for creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God now that you recognize as Romans 8 that diamond of the writings of the Apostle Paul and in all of the beauty of what he wrote there's only two words I want to speak out this morning which I feel the Holy Spirit laid up in my heart and it's these two words earnest expectation 
not expectation, not hoping, wonderful as hope is, but there is a radical difference between hope and expectation. And faith is expectation. And expectation is faith. Hope is beautiful. Hope is wonderful. But hope is not faith. Expectation is the center heart beat of faith. Now, these two words, hear them. Earnest, earnest expectation. Earnest expectation. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, what I understand in that, as the apostle goes on to explain that creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the sons of God, and that not only so, but creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, that there is not a remote planet anywhere in the universe. There is not a wandering asteroid anywhere in outer space, but that inside of it is an earnest groaning waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now here's my question. If all creation is in an earnest expectation, if dead rocks and dead stones and sand on the beach can be experiencing an earnest expectation for the revelation of the sons of God, why cannot the sons of God themselves be caught up in that earnest expectation? That earnest expectation. I'm thinking of the moment when Duncan Campbell was preaching on the island of Bernaray and revival falling and they had gathered after midnight one night in an old stone farmhouse to pray because revival had not fallen on this particular community. And a young teenage boy after midnight leaped to the center of the room and raised his hand to God and said, you promised to pour out your spirit, to pour out water on a dry and thirsty land, and you're not doing it, and I challenge you to do it. And Duncan said the moment that he raised his hand and said, I challenge you to do it, he said that great stone farmhouse shook like a leaf. And everyone in the building feeling that presence of God, ran out into the night to look toward the village. And every farmhouse in the village, after midnight, suddenly had lights coming on all across the town. And Duncan said, I went to the first farmhouse, I went to the back door, and found the farmer and his wife face down on the kitchen floor, groaning before the Lord in repentance for their sin. And that's how revival came, like a bolt of lightning, and struck that community. And the power of God began to move. Why? Because there was an earnest expectation in the heart of that teenage boy. An earnestness that he wanted to reach up and grab hold of God. And he wasn't going to be satisfied until the fire of God fell. And if all of creation is groaning and travailing in birth pangs, waiting for the re revelation of us as the children and sons and daughters of God, waiting for the revelation of us. What about us? How can we, as the church and the body of Christ in the earth, 
go through all our routines of religion in a nonchalant and sometimes empty-hearted way when everything around us is in a state of groaning because of us. Earnest expectation. Earnest. Earnest expectation. the blating of your flock in the earth. Hear us as we cry for the unsaved of London, as we lift our hands in intercession for all of England, and we're saying, Father, give us, give us your church, your body in the earth, that electric, earnest expectation, earnest expectation that God our Father, that we will not halt, we will not cease until we have seen the power of God fall. You've done it in the past. You did it there in the ministry of that precious man, Duncan, when he and Hector McKenna stood on the top of a hill and looked down in the moonlight and saw the wind of God blowing upon the people and they were falling out in the heather, falling out under the power of a mighty God who is breathing into them himself and his spirit. Oh, Father, your church cries out to you. Birth in us. Put in our hearts that cry of earnest expectation. Earnest expectation for the revelation of the sons of God. God Almighty, God Almighty, we would dare to say you promised to pour out your spirit, to pour out water on a dry and thirsty land and you're not doing it and we challenge you to do it. We challenge you to do it. You're sovereign. There's not a demon in the pit. All of them in one pile and the devil on top that can stop your sovereignty. All human sin in the earth in one pile is not greater than your grace. Mercy has triumphed over judgment. Mercy from the cross, its radiant streaming adds more luster to the day. Oh, God, our Father, we pray for England. We pray for London. 
We pray for the fall of your Holy Spirit in this place. God, not a visitation of the Holy Spirit at Westminster Chapel, but a habitation of the Holy Spirit. You've done it in the past, purely out of grace. And you've taught us, Lord, the truth that grace all this work shall crown in everlasting days. It lays in heaven the topmost stone and well deserves the praise. Now, Father, we're coming asking for grace. Grace, even as when the headstone of the temple was laid and Israel came out shouting grace, grace unto it. The headstone of the temple is already here and Israel now sits silent staring at it. God forgive us. God forgive us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, heavenly dove, with all your quickening power. Kindle the flame of sacred love in these waiting hearts of ours. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, because of the blessing and the grace of Jesus. Nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. But, Father, all around us, we see poor mourners weeping, trembling as they go, longing for a hope in Jesus. Will we comfort them or no? Let us tell them of the Savior. Tell them that he may be found. Let us pray that holy manna may be scattered all around. Is there here a weeping jailer? seeking grace and filled with fear? Is there here a weeping Mary pouring forth a flood of tears? Let us join our prayers to help them. Let our faith and love abound. Let us pray that a holy manna may be scattered all around. God, our Father, who are we as creatures of the earth made from the dust, the decay, the refuse of other fallen things, dare to come into your presence and challenge you to bring revival to this land. Who are we to do so? God Almighty, let all hell hear us give the answer. We are not just men and women created of the dust of the earth. We are men and women born of the power and the spirit of a living God. We are men and women redeemed by the blood of the sacrificial lamb of the Messiah himself. We are men and women who have the word of God in our hearts and as a two-edged sword in our hands. We are not men and women. We are the redeemed in Christ. And you've said, let the redeemed say so. God, forgive us for our silence. Not just our silence before each other, but God, forgive us for our silence before you that we have not come, we have not come in intercession as we should have come, that from the very throne of heaven, Jesus, you now sit making intercession for the saints according to the will of God, and that all creation is picking up the echo of that intercession, and all creation is groaning and travailing together in pain till now, and all creation is expressing that longing for the revelation of the sons of God by groaning. And then, Lord, you've told us in the Word 
that likewise we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us, through us, with groanings that cannot be uttered. And even when then, Lord, we as your saints and the earth, your redeemed ones, sit silent. Sit silent. I ask. I ask, Father, in the name of Jesus, in the blood of Jesus, in the merits of a risen Jesus, an ascended Jesus, who sits at your right hand now, that you pour out on your church a spirit of intercession. Pour upon your church. Pour upon your church intercession that we join Jesus not just with creation, but that we join with you in that groaning and that travailing of the body of Christ in the earth. Because, Father, you said of Egypt when Israel was there that you had heard the groaning of your people in Egypt. And because of the groaning of your people in Egypt, you had come down for their deliverance. And yet, God, now your church sits silent, embarrassed, because tradition has us paralyzed, because tradition does not want to release us to experience the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit of God, because the powers of darkness fear this intercession, fear this release of power in the body of Christ. They're terrorized by it, and so they make our tradition more beautiful, more controlling, more gripping. Father, but I ask now in Jesus' name, deliver us from that. Move, Holy Spirit, in our presence. Move in our midst. And those that you have, whom you have already touched with the power of intercession, God Almighty, release that in them. Those who have never experienced intercession, who have never been pulled into that harmony of creation, groaning and travailing in pain, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, God, pull all of us into it. All of us, all of us. Help us to understand there will be no revival in London. There will be no moving of the Holy Spirit of God so long as the saints themselves remain unmoved and remain fixed in our piety, in our religious performance, in our pride. God Almighty, hear our prayer. Hear our prayer. Lord, and move through us, Holy Spirit, in your power. Jesus, you promised that those who genuinely, ardently, zealously, aggressively loved you, that you would manifest yourself to them. You would come and make your home with them. Now, Lord, there is no other way that the world is going to hear the gospel and be saved, except that they see and hear beyond our human words and our human arguments, and that that mighty wind of the Holy Spirit began to blow upon them and in them. And Holy Spirit, we offer you, this pastor, this congregation offers you this spot, this site to come, Holy Spirit. And as you lighted upon the Messiah, the body of Jesus in the Jordan, 
and we are now the second body of Christ. We are the, the body of Christ visibly in the earth. Come again, Holy Spirit, and light upon us and abide upon us. We ask not that you come and just entertain us and then demonstrate yourself and be gone, but that, Holy Spirit, you come in power. You come in power and you remain upon us. You remain upon us, O Lord, and take this historic, grand, wonderful, magnificent spot and bring the fire of God into it. Bring the fire of God into it. Bring, Holy Spirit, the light of God into this place that men and women from all walks of England will come, be drawn, be saved, be healed, be delivered, be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and will go forth as ambassadors of Christ from this place. Oh, God Almighty, God Almighty, church, you're not hearing. You're not hearing. You're not hearing. Pray that the scales may fall from your eyes. Pray that the hardness of your heart may melt. Pray that the tenderness of Jesus may replace all the religious performance of your life and that the Holy Spirit will have access to your deepest part, to your deepest part, and that you'll experience the moving of the power and the Spirit of God. This is what it's all about. It's not about emotion. It's not about sensationalism. It's not about hype. It's not about those things. It's about the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And I can guarantee us, when God moves into our ranks, when God comes in, that all of our religious opposition is going to melt like wax at his feet. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come, come, come. Come, we wait, we wait, we wait, we yearn with earnest expectation, earnest expectation. This is your body, Lord. This is your body. This is part of your church, and it's a key part. It's in a key spot, Lord, to reach out, to affect people from every walk, every walk, every walk. Those of you who experience this, even mildly so, this gripping of intercession in your midsection, I want you to stand where you are. If you're experiencing a gripping, and, and please don't feel embarrassed if you don't stand. That's okay. But if you're feeling a gripping, an intercession in your midsection, and that's usually where this is to be felt, because Jesus said on that great day of the feast, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes into me, not on me, but he who believes into me, as the scripture has said, out of his bosom shall flow rivers of living water. When Elijah was on Mount Carmel in intercession, praying after three and a half years of drought, and the crops were dead, the cows were dead, the horses, mules were dead, trees in the forest were dead. And Elijah went into intercession. The scripture says he had his head between his knees. That is, he was in a birthing position. He was in that kind of earnest prayer that shook hell to its core. And as he prayed, a little cloud, no larger than a man's hand, rose out of the sea. But it was the answer to the intercession. And he told Gehazi and told Ahab, get down, there's the sound of abundance of rain. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray for the sound of abundance of rain to fall upon England, the fire and the rain of revival and the moving of the Holy Spirit 
in power and in demonstration. God Almighty, God Almighty, we lift our voice to you asking that you move upon us in intercession. You move upon us in intercession. You come, Lord, in power. Well, it's a joy to be with you, in spite of what was said. I am not nervous. I am not tired. I will be 70 in a month, and I do not dye my hair. <laughs> and I will have to warn you. My father, I'm from the States, of course. I was born in Homestead, Florida, which is at the very bottom end of the state. My father's people were French Indian, Cherokee. My mother's were English Indian, probably Iroquois. And that was the worst possible combination. So I just warn you, don't get me upset. And if God does something you don't like, talk to him. I'm delighted to be with you. I love your pastor. I love him. We had never met until a conference last spring in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And he preached on forgiveness. And when he got through, I think I was the first at the altar. And then later I preached on intercessory prayer from Romans 8, where the Apostle Paul talks about all creation being in groaning and travailing pain, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. And then connecting that to what he further said, Romans 8:26, that we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And then a little deeper into the chapter, it talks about Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Well, it was a unique point of learning for me as well in that particular sermon, because for the first time I understood that what creation is experiencing in its groaning and travailing waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God and it is to the farthest planet to the smallest shell on the beach to the smallest grain of sand there is a groaning in all of creation waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God and that that wonderful intercession which creation is experiencing is actually the echoing from the intercession of Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father and then when we experience that kind of groaning of the Spirit and that intercession that rises from us in that way it simply means that we have joined in with all creation all creation and joined in with the intercession of Jesus. At any rate, it was an apocalyptic moment for me, time of learning for me, and I'm grateful that God used that as the opportunity to get Dr. Kendall's attention, and then in turn that I could come here and be with you. I have only one desire. I have only one desire, and that is that the Holy Spirit be free to glorify Jesus Beyond that, I have absolutely no ambition. But I have a tremendous ambition for the church in our day, 
to awaken to the fullness of all that the Holy Spirit is and all that the Holy Spirit does and then of the pulling back of the veil to let us see the glory of Christ that can be revealed in the church in our day. And I grieve in my heart to tell you that I think throughout much of Christianity we have missed it. I know personally, and I can speak only for myself, I experienced the call of God in my life when I was 18 years old. And that was a call. It wasn't anything I volunteered for because, and I can go back to the very spot in Miami, Florida, where it happened that on one foot I was not called to preach, and on the next foot I was. And the experience was so total, so commanding, and at the same time so devastating to every plan I had for my own life that I fell apart. And then I went ahead, submitted to the ministry in a guarded sort of way, began serving the Lord in a uh, reformed theology background, that's what my family had been, and which I loved, still love. But then in 1977, came to a realization that there was some, after 30 years almost of preaching, that there was something I had grievously missed. The Holy Spirit took me back to a point of learning again. And this coming out of a very, and I am going to read the scripture, this coming out of a very severe crisis in my life, in my life, and the life of my wife. At any rate, the short of it was, during that period of recovery from tragedy and a severe automobile wreck, I went to the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary as a counselor, not because I really cared for the prisoners, but because I was in such depression, I thought, if I can see other men who are hurting worse than I'm hurting, perhaps that will help me. And it, that was my whole reason for volunteering when I was asked. That was my whole reason for going. But God, in his wisdom, put me across the table in the visitor's room from a young man who was almost young enough to have been my son, who the year before we met had been miraculously born again, delivered from heroin addiction, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And I was the one, he was the one that I was to counsel. And he was fine, he was like a light bulb turned on. And I was the one that would come dragging into the prison to tell him all about God. And one day, in a very kind way, the Lord spoke to me and said, Charles, shut up. Shut up. Listen to what he has to say. He has your answer. Well, I wish I could tell you that I immediately fell before him and before the Lord and said, give it to me, but I didn't. I was so filled with theological arguments and doctrines of debate that it took three months while I went sliding farther off the pit of depression before, on November 23, 1977, I finally bowed my stiff religious neck and a loud number 88860 sitting there in olive drab and I had on the fancy blue suit and I was coming unglued and falling apart emotionally and he was rejoicing in the Lord and it looked strange to the mafia inmates and their girlfriends that were sitting all around when he was consoling me 
But he did more than console me. He reached across the table, laid his hands on my head, and I finally consenting, and said, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may be filled, that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. God wisely let me get home before all heaven broke loose. But it did. I was delivered from depression and suicide in a moment's time. That thing rooted into my life was jerked out, and then I was filled with the Holy Spirit. It would scare you if you had been there. I had never known the power that the power of the Holy Spirit could come on anybody like he came on me. Greatest transformation in my life. I lost my church. I was defrocked. My ordination was canceled. The good things that happened, hallelujah. I say that lovingly. But God began to move. And God did surprising things. I never knew God did. At any rate, that's the background. I want to share with you three brief scriptures that in the onset you may not think are related, but these are three that I feel like God has specifically given me. I'll tell you where they are. Genesis 9, 12, and 13 is where God says to Noah, with a rainbow in the cloud, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you. You remember that. And then in Genesis 17 and 10, where God said to Abraham, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And then the third passage, Genesis 24:22, when Abraham sent his servant to get a bride for Isaac, and we, we have the parabolic example there of Abraham representing God the Father, Isaac representing God the Son, the, Holy, the servant representing the unnamed Holy the servant representing the Holy Spirit, and Rebecca representing the bride or the church. And in Genesis 24:22, the servant, it says, it came to pass as the camels had done drinking that the man took a golden earring of half a shekel weight, two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold. Now, I want the Holy Spirit to be the one to show us how these three verses all come together to speak but one truth, one holy supreme truth that relates to us. And I must tell you, first of all, about this one relative to the rainbow as a sign of covenant. My home airport that I fly in and out of is the Palm Beach, Florida airport. And about possibly four years ago, I was there with my wife and a friend and at the moment that they announced our flight, everyone in the concourse heard a shriek, a loud shriek. And I looked over in that direction, and sitting off by themselves was a boy about 12, sobbing, a man beside him, and a flight attendant standing over him. And when I saw that, I told my wife, I said, that's another divorce. I said, the child has been here with his father, now he's having to fly home to be with his mother, and he doesn't want to go. And I was right. The flight attendant put the boy on the plane first, sobbing, shrugging, and shaking. And my heart went out to him. And I, I prayed. I said, Lord, when I get on the plane, I want to have the seat next to that boy. And that's what happened. I got on. He had his face against the window and against the wall, still weeping. 
I didn't introduce myself or say anything. I just put my arm around him and hugged him and began to pray. And as I prayed, he calmed down. And then we talked about the fact that his parents were divorced and he was having to go home to his mother, who had been married, he said, five times, and his father, who was still single. At any rate, he fell quiet, and I leaned back against the cushion and was not thinking anything, particularly more about that, when all of a sudden he grabbed my arm and he said, look out the window. And I did. I looked out the window, and please hear me, for the first time in my life, I saw the complete circle of the rainbow. Now, you may or may not be aware that the rainbow is not the half circle that we see from the ground. I want you to hear this. It's a wonderful truth. The rainbow, like the wedding ring you wear, is a complete unbroken circle. The only way you can see it is for you to be up in the air looking down. Even Noah, seeing the bow, saw only half of God's plan and God's provision. And the message in that to us, and I shared that with this boy, I said, from earth here, in our circumstance, in our pain and hurting, we see only half of the purposes of God. It's only when we're in heaven looking back, and as, as covenant believers, and as reformed believers, or whatever our background may be, the message is all the same. When we're with God in heaven looking back in our lives at all the dark, all the tragic, all the undesirable things, which God did not do, God did not do, but which came to us anyway, only then are we going to be able to see the full circle of God's grace that surrounded us and kept us through them all. And I told that to that young boy. That rainbow didn't have a break in it. Absolutely, it went up as far as we could see, came down and seemed to float on the surface of the water. So we talked about that. And I'm thinking one of your old English hymn writers, and I'm, I want to say Benjamin Keach, but I'm uncertain, who said of God's, that God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And the very things in life now that you and I do not understand and we cannot grasp and that seem only to wound us, let me tell us all something. When the grace of Almighty God finally wraps all things together in His wonder and in His love, we will be able to look back through it all and see how grace triumphed in our lives. Grace, all this work shall crown. Another English writer said, Grace, all this work shall crown. In everlasting days, it lays in heaven the topmost stone and well deserves the praise. Now that's grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Now that's grace. And the full covenant of grace and the sign of the rainbow, even though Noah didn't know it, realize it, is a complete circle. But here's what I want to tell you. God spoke to me. I leaned back against the cushion. I was no longer thinking just about that boy. I, if you've ever had the experience of throwing a rock into a pond and seeing ripples radiate out from it, sitting there on the plane, I felt like that I was the rock in the pond but the ripples, instead of radiating out, were coming in. That truths of God I had never seen before. Truths of Scripture and even facts of science that I had n never entertained a meaning to. 
I felt like these giant ripples were coming in and centering on me. And here's what I want to tell you, that for the first time ever in my life, I understood why God used the sign of circumcision. And just bear with me, please. Why God used that sign as the sign of his covenant upon every Hebrew male. I, ha I had revelation. I suddenly realized that that complete circle of the rainbow, glorious, beautiful, magnificent, was the same holy truth of it was what God had reduced to just a small scar on every Hebrew male. The Holy Spirit began speaking to me about truths in that area I did not know and in a sense com commanded me, now speak it to my people. I want them to understand what the circle of covenant is all about. Just one other thought on that. What God was telling me relative to ancient Hebrew circumcision, which in Christ has totally been made spiritual, totally been made spiritual, that every Hebrew child was conceived in the presence of his father's covenant ring, covenant sign, rainbow glory scar. And now I want to talk on that third scripture I read to you of what else God showed me as it relates to you. Back to what I said earlier about my experience with that young prisoner in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. I knew absolutely nothing, I hate to tell you, but I knew absolutely nothing about the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. I had preached and been taught to teach that 1 Corinthians 11 was valid, 12 was not, 13 was valid, 14 was not, 15 was valid. I don't know whether any of you have ever gotten pulled in to that black hole, but that's what it is. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And so when God began dealing with me about the spiritual giftings of the spirit, he may not have known it, but he had a fight on his hands. And then he told me this. With that experience on the plane and that child, that rainbow, and then the rite of circumcision, he took me to that scene where Abraham's servant found the bride for Isaac. And what was it he gave her? He gave her golden rings which as a, a woman taught on that day and prepared of the Lord to be the bride of Isaac, Rebekah understood these are signs of covenant. And then the Holy Spirit reminded me these gifts were not, please hear me, these gifts were not wedding gifts for Rebekah. She got the wedding gifts later at the wedding. And I said, Lord, what are they? He said, they're engagement gifts. Exactly like today, when a couple gets married and the groom-to-be puts, groom puts an engagement ring 
on the hand of the bride today. It's an engagement gift, not a wedding gift. I understood that. And then the Holy Spirit said, gifts of the Spirit are engagement gifts. Now, you need a day or two for that to soak in, apparently. I want you to hear me again. He said, the gifts, the miraculous giftings of the Holy Spirit are not wedding gifts. These are engagement gifts that he slips on the body of the bride now. And they speak not only of the father's wealth, Abraham's wealth, they speak not only of the groom, Isaac's love, but they speak to the bride that she has a relationship that has become miraculous. I didn't understand any of that for the first 30 years of my ministry. But after my encounter with the Holy Spirit, I'll just tell you, I didn't realize it at the time. But I got up, and on my wrist, and on my fingers were rings and bracelets that had not been there before. I'll give you an example. The first 30 years of my ministry, I had people with a lot of life-crushing problems, alcoholics in the church. The only remedy I had for them was to take them to a detox center or some state facility, which I did. And then on one occasion, when the facility, uh, state facility refused to accept a man who had a horrible drinking problem, I just drove off and left him on their steps. That's all I knew to do. But immediately, immediately, after my new encounter with the Holy Spirit, I saw God doing miraculous things. Now, people can argue all they want. All they want. I am not arguing a point of doctrine. I simply can tell you what my own eyes have seen. For example, not long after my encounter with the Holy Spirit and a renewal in the Holy Spirit, one of my former church members called me long distance. I had moved back to Florida. I had been in Atlanta. I was living in Atlanta when my new encounter with the Lord occurred. I moved back to Florida, and this dear woman called me. I hadn't seen her in a good many years, but I knew that she was an alcoholic. She had been that for some 18 years, an incurable alcoholic, a drunk, the, the town drunk. She had reached the point where she couldn't comb her hair or wouldn't comb her hair, couldn't button her dress, couldn't care for herself. And she called me and she said, I understand something new has happened to you. I said, yes. And before I realized what was happening in my witnessing to this dear sister on the phone, I led her into a deliverance from addiction over the telephone. I had never done that before. I was still learning a lot of what the Holy Spirit could do. 
But I suddenly discovered that I was speaking to the spirit of addiction over the telephone and telling it what it was going to do. Jesus said, these signs will follow those who believe. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus said, they will cast out demons in his name. And I know for a fact that the modern contemporary church does not want to do either. But this woman over the telephone in a few minutes' time got delivered. She even said to me at one point, Brother Charles, Brother Karen, Brother Karen, what, what, what? And she was choking. What's happening? I said, you're fine. I said, are you sitting down? Yes. I said, is someone else there with you? Yes. I found out later it was another alcoholic woman who wouldn't have been a whole lot of help in a deliverance ministry. <laughs> but at least she was not alone. Here's the short of it. In a 10-minute ministry over the phone, 18 years of alcohol addiction came to an immediate end. That's God. What, what had happened? Well, one of those bracelets the servant of the Father had put on me was now reaching out and touching another life. I tell you this, though. She went back to her church, excitedly told the church what had happened to her. She said, I've been delivered. I'm no longer an alcoholic. I don't drink. I don't need have it. I have no more need for it. I'm free. I've been delivered by the Holy Spirit. And the church said, you've been what? I've been delivered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came. You, what happened to you? The church began backing away. They could not understand. Please hear me. They could not understand what had happened to that dear woman when the power of the Holy Spirit came into her life. Tragically, she had to leave that church that she had been a member of probably 30 years and find another that could rejoice with what God had done in her life. I want you to hear me on this. Her old church could accept her alcoholism because it did not challenge their theology. But they could not and would not accept her deliverance because it did challenge their theology. Their decision was they would rather stay unmoved where they were and let all the alcoholics in their congregation and in their reach perish rather than they themselves change. That is the issue that faces the church. Are we going with Scripture? Are we going to move in the power of the Holy Spirit? Are we going to tell the Holy Spirit, I surrender. I surrender. Put your bracelets on me. Put your rings, your golden rings, on me. Whatever you have in the treasure of God that the Father wants on me. No argument. No argument. Here I am. Now, I can say this because for nearly 30 years, my attitude was not at all like Rebecca's. Can you imagine... 
what would it would have looked like if Rebecca had told the servant when he took that beautiful gold bracelet out and she had said, I will not wear that. Put it back in your box. Yes, but Rebecca, this is a very fine golden piece to blush. I will not wear it. Put it back in your box. Or can you imagine if Rebecca had come home to her father's tent, which she did, wearing these golden bracelets and golden rings, if the family had said, Rebecca, if you're going to live here, you're going to take those and get rid of them. Are you with me? I don't know. Are you with me? Be honest. Am I over the head of some of you in what I'm saying? I may come down and get you if I find out. Now, you laugh, but sometimes I do that. I, the modern church, I did it for years, told the Holy Spirit, those gifts are not welcome here. Or that gift is going, hear this, does not match my outfit. And my neighbors won't like it if I wear this gift. Are you with me? Are you drawing back? I want you to hear me. The miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit are engagement gifts. They don't, they're not going to make you any more married to Christ than you already are. What they are going to do they're going to simply empower you to show the love of Christ in ways other than you, that you cannot do without them. Now, I won't talk about you, but I'll tell you about me. The one gift of the Spirit that I was most terrified about, you already know. You laugh. I know you know. When I, that young prisoner had witnessed to me what I needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that was going to, and I knew what he was telling me truth. I still argued with him, but I knew he was telling me truth. That one gift that God deliberately designed to attack your ego and to attack your pride was the one that I most did not want. And it's the only one of the nine charismatic gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 14 that I'm convinced is deliberately designed, deliberately planned to attack your ego and your pride. Can I tell you why? Or illustrate it next time you're in a, at the bank. Tell the teller. Just say, did you know I pray in tongues? <laughs> what will happen? Here's your money. Tell a group of Christian friends. Or you don't even have to tell them you pray in tongues. Just ask them what they think about it. What will happen? You will see eyes narrow down. You will see jaws harden. Somebody will say, tongues is divisive. Yes, it is. 
It really is. It works. Number one, it's that one gift that everybody tells the servant, put that back in the box. You were fine until now. Or your sermon was okay until now. But Maud, get the children, we're leaving. That's because our human ego and our pride is already in direct conflict with the Holy Spirit. I kid you not, he was the bright light in that dark, dark penitentiary. God gave him miraculous words of knowledge about me. He could tell me things I had done, places I had been. I remember on, on various occasions I would come into the prison and open, while I was waiting on him, and it was sometimes a long time, I would open the Bible and I would read a passage. And this happened on three different occasions. I was going, this was that period of my life when I was in such pain and such depression and, and suicide. He would come in, I would read a scripture, close the Bible, he would come in, read the identical scripture back to me and say, Charles, this is what God wants you to hear in this. Well, he would have revelation knowledge of it far beyond what I ever had. That happened so many times. I remember leaving the penitentiary one day. I could go back to the spot on the steps, and this has been almost 25 years ago. And I stopped and I said, Lord, I'm grateful for these little signs. I want a big one. I want a big one. Next week when I come back to the prison, I want Tom to tell me that all week long, all week long, he's been studying the book of Joshua. And I said it just like that. Joshua. I got to the prison the next week. I didn't open the Bible. I didn't think Joshua. I didn't read Joshua. I wouldn't let my mind get anywhere near that. I'm sitting here, a little table about this big. I had to use the prison Bible. They wouldn't let me take mine in. They were afraid I would smuggle drugs in. So <clears throat> the, the prison Bible was there. Tom came in, stopped, reached across me, picked up the Bible, said, Charles, all week long God's had me in the book of Joshua for you. <laughs> and then all I had said, and Lord, I want him to be in the book of Joshua all week, and I want him to read to me from the first of the book. So what he did was to turn to chapter 1, begin to read, and chapter 3. And when I was leaving the prison that day, it was like I got stopped again and there was a tap on the shoulder from the Lord. And he was saying, how many more do you need? How many more do you need? Do you know what was happening? Gifts, miraculous gifts were in operation. They were there on his wrist, not on mine. But here was the point I wanted to tell you. I would go to the prison and he would talk to me and convict me of my pride, primarily. I would go home. There was a certain downstairs bedroom that I would go to pray. It had an old cannonball post at the foot of the bed, just the right height to catch and lean against. And I would say this specific prayer. God, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. My only conditions are... <laughs> I do not want to speak in tongues. I do not want to shout. I do not want to be spectacular. Now, with that understood, you may go ahead. You may go ahead. 
and I would wait. I had the idea God would be so eager to get me, he'd take me on my terms. No. The only way we come is God's route. The day that that tremendous, tremendous, life-changing experience came, when he had reached across the table, quoted Ananias' words to Paul, and I went home. I fell across the bed, still had my clothes on. I think even my preacher tie and coat and shoes. And my prayer was, Lord, I can't go on. If you're ever going to help me, it has to be now. Next week, next month, a year from now, will be too late. I put no conditions on the Lord. Heaven came down, my soul agreed. Glory crowned the mercy seat. When I got up, the bracelets were on my wrist. Since then, I've had the wonderful, wonderful privilege of seeing now literally thousands of people in public meetings, private ministry, experience the wonderful work of the power of God. Had one Baptist pastor who came to us for ministry, and we didn't know it till afterward, but he told us, he said, I brought my gun. And I said, if this ministry failed, I was not going home alive. The ministry didn't fail. All of the tragic oppression in his life was driven out. All the demonic strongholds were broken down. And he floated out of there, glorifying God. Well, that's what it's all about. The church, I don't know whether, I don't know where any of us are. I only know where I've been. And I can tell you this. I would never go back to where I was. I would never go back. Even with the personal loss of being defrocked. Because of this. Because of this. I've seen people with life-crushing problems in a moment's time be set free. A moment's time. Homes restored, lives restored, minds restored, finances restored. All the good things that the Holy Spirit can do. I want you to stand. <clears throat> and I want to go back to the original statement of God's first sign of covenant, the rainbow. You're only seeing half of it right now. I don't care how hard you try. You're not going to see the other half of God's operation in your life till you're up there with him. That's the reason we have to live lives by faith. And perhaps there is no other place, at least for some of us, it was for me, where my faith is challenged more than telling Jesus after 30 years of preaching, thinking I had it all put together, ignoring the fact that I was doing a hopscotch theology with Scripture, but finally telling him, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence, daily live. We've all sung that song thousands of times. We pastors have, thinking it was being addressed to someone else in the congregation. It isn't. It's addressed to us. I surrender all. Father, I pray for this congregation. Lord, 
that in the wonder of your grace, in the fulfilling of your covenant, that we will experience your putting new bracelets and gifts on us. I want the musicians to come back, if you will, please, and lead us in worship. And Father, wherever we are still holding on to our own choice, our own will, our own way, help us to surrender it. Help us where we are right now just to give you our wrists and say, Lord, be it unto me according to your word. According to your word. Now, church, I want you please to enter into worship. Forget me. Stay where you are for the moment. Just forget me. You are so easy to love. Now, I don't say that facetiously at all. You are so easy to love. And I'm, <laughs> I don't want to say this facetiously either. I'm in some places where it's kind of hard. I have felt so welcomed. I have felt so warmed. And I have felt a brooding of the Holy Spirit over you. A brooding. I don't know another word to use. A hovering of the Holy Spirit. I felt like in the service this morning, almost as if there were a, a, a monstrous-sized balloon that we were just that close to puncturing overhead and all the glory of heaven flooding in upon us. And may I encourage you that if we get that close tonight, somebody please jump. <laughs> let's, let's get all the way. I've shared a little bit earlier about my own experience. I'm now in my 51st year of ministry, and I think I'm 43. Is that what I said? 43 years old? At any rate, I was a pastor for about 45 years, and God wonderfully delivered me from that. Sent me out, and I'm not actually an evangelist. I, to be absolutely honest with you, I don't know what I am. But I know that six years ago, maybe seven now, the Holy Spirit spoke to me these words. Go wake up my church. And so for that reason, I really don't consider myself an evangelist because evangelists, for the most part, are sent to the unsaved. My mission is in traveling around, as I'm now doing, and I'm on about 70 airline flights a year. I live in South Florida. How wonderful. God let me be born there. People have asked me at times, they were suspicious that I had just moved to South Florida so I could enjoy the sunshine and warmth of it, but that's not really the reason I'm there. My family has been in, in Florida since Seminole War Indian days, and I'm grateful that the traveling that I'm now doing, I'm privileged to be in a variety of churches of all denominations. I've even preached from Roman Catholic churches to Jewish synagogues, and most everybody in between. I don't want a lot of preliminaries. I want to go into the Word, but I want to do something else. David, will you come up here, please? He didn't know I was going to do this, and he doesn't have to preach. <laughs> and aren't you glad? <laughs> Several years ago, my wife and I started praying that God would give me a helper. My wife is not able to travel like she once did, and I needed someone to go with me. And... When was it? 
you, we were in January 30th, 1999. January 30th, just almost two years ago, I was preaching in this dear brother's community, not in his church, but his community, and he came. And I don't even know when it was that I laid hands on him. I do distinctly remember seeing him on the floor, curled up like a pretzel, getting vibrated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the praying that my wife and I had done, it was in that moment that the Lord spoke and said, this is the man of whom I spoke to you. Now that's what he said to Samuel when he told the prophet that he was going to send him a man to be king over Israel. Behold the man of whom I spoke to you. I'm just grateful for David's presence with me and his ministry. And the reason I had him to come up, I want you to pray for him. God is gifting him, impacting him with a tremendous charging of, of his spiritual battery for ministry that is yet going to come out. He will be ministering among the crowd with me tonight, as will be the ministry team and the deacons. But I just, I want you to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to direct this young brother as he travels with me and as God does his work among us. Bless you. How many of you were not here this morning? May I see your hands? All right. Well, praise God. You're here tonight. I want to read briefly a scripture. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Hear this again. Therefore, in spite of all the crises Paul has enumerated that we've been through, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And with God's help this evening, I want to speak to you about the subject of your outward man or woman, your inward man or woman. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 44. Paul is talking about now the, the body being buried or sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now hear this. There is a natural body, an outer body, physical body, and there is a spiritual body. Now joining that with the previous verse, therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man the outward person is perishing, yet the inward person is being renewed day by day. Now, I want you to hold that while I tell you an experience I had some years ago. I was on Lookout Mountain in northwest Georgia. It was in the fall of the year, probably this time of the year, and it was one of those bright, bright, blue, magnificent days. Fall had arrived in all its glory, all its beauty. The trees were absolutely magnificent. And I was in a place where there were numerous maple trees. And some of the leaves had fallen and I was holding them in my hand. And what I was seeing was not dead color. What I was seeing in the gold, in the red, in the pink, and in the yellows, intermingled in the leaf, what I was seeing was a leaf, a li a, pardon, a leaf that was vibrant with life. Now true, it had fallen from the tree. But please hear me, the colors were not dead colors. The colors were live. They, were seen, they seemed even to pulsate with life. Now, I would be hesitant to tell you this. 
But as I was holding the leaves in my hand, there was one of those supreme moments when it seemed almost that I could see all the way through the leaf, or I could see into the leaf, and I could see the wonderful systems of life that God had put into that leaf. Now, what had made that particularly important to me was that I had just learned something which you may or may not know. I had just learned that the beautiful autumn colors have been present in the leaf all summer long. Now, hear me, it's important. I had just learned that the beautiful autumn colors had been present in the leaf all summer long. They do not, the, the gold, the pink, the yellow, the reds, do not come into the leaf because the leaf is dying. They have been present all the while. I wonder how many of you knew that. I did not. All right, there's just a sprinkling of hands that knew that. Well, while I was holding the leaf in my hand and absorbed with that fact, that this beautiful color has been there all the year, but we could not see it, God began speaking to me. And he wasn't speaking to me about the foliage or the beautiful colors. He began speaking to me about myself and about humanity at large. And what he began telling me was, Charles, these colors have been here all the time, but they could not be seen because the green chlorophyll overlaid that and obscured that beautiful color. What happens in the fall when days begin to turn cool and, and days are shortened and there's less sunlight, the tree stops the manufacture of chlorophyll. The chlorophyll begins to fade out. And then there is that brief period of time in which those beautiful colors are free to be seen. Then the cold that quickly follows strips them from the tree. But the important fact is this, that those colors were there all summer. We could not see them because of the overpowering effects of the chlorophyll and the green. And what the Holy Spirit spoke to me was this same thought, though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And he wasn't actually talking so much about the perishing of the outward man as he was illustrating to me the reality of the presence of both men, both women, both persons being present at the same time inside of us. And here was the message. I have a spiritual being in me. And that spiritual being, symbolized there in the leaves, is the gold, the beautiful, the radiant, the colors that seem almost luminous. But that beautiful person in me cannot be seen because of the overwhelming effects and obscuring effects of the outer life of the flesh. And what the Holy Spirit began talking to me about was that we as Christians, while we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that is the beautiful spiritual being that's within us, the world never sees that. They can't behold that in us because of the dominating power of the soulish life that obscures it. And what the Holy Spirit began telling me was, Charles, your green needs to go. Now hear me. What I want to come out of you is not more cosmetics put on the green, not more decoration put on the outer man. What I'm wanting is that to decrease. And I remembered immediately the words of John the Baptist when he said of Jesus and himself, I must decrease, he must increase. And then I began to understand that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that the beauty of Jesus is there. 
And tragically and unfortunately, many of us go through our entire lives, our entire lives, with that inner person of the beauty of God never coming to the surface and never being seen. And what is required for that other beautiful person to come forth? What is required is spoken of in Scripture as the death of the outer man, the death of ego, the death of pride. And I am fully convinced and fully persuaded that at least in some degree, that's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Holy Spirit then began taking me on a tour of scriptures and people in the scripture who had experienced this fading out of the soulish life. This doesn't mean they died physically. This doesn't mean that they went through some horrible, horrible tragedy to bring them into this greater relationship with Jesus Christ. It meant that these were men and women who became so focused on the Lord, loving their families, doing their jobs, serving humanity, doing their common labor in whatever capacity they had, but at the same time in their private devotion with God, seeking before him the death of the outer person, that the inner person of the Spirit might come forth and be seen. And then the Lord reminded me that when Stephen was being stoned to death and Saul of Tarsus standing by, that everyone in the synagogue saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And I said, Lord, what do you mean in that? Now, just bringing it down to the language of where we are, what God explained to me was in that moment, when Stephen was still very much alive, and not one single stone had touched him, yet everyone in the synagogue saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. What was happening in that moment? That was the moment in which, in Stephen's experience, the green was fading out. And that other beautiful person of the spirit, there is a spirit, spiritual body and there is a natural body. There is an outer man who is perishing day by day and there is an inner man or woman of the spirit that is being renewed day by day. And as Stephen was there in the synagogue, knowing that death was imminent, though he had not yet begun to die physically, that wonderful transition began taking place until the beauty of the angelic or the holy being inside of Stephen began coming out. Now, here's my question to the church. In fact, I may have quoted this earlier in another, another service, where St. Augustine said, Wherever you go, preach Christ. Whenever necessary, use words. Now, you didn't get that. Wherever you go, preach Christ whenever necessary, use words. What St. Augustine was saying was that there is in us the potential of preaching Christ and presenting Christ in a way that our lips are still silent. Now, church, I want to tell us all something. If the only witness we have of Jesus Christ is our passing out a tract, or are sharing a word with somebody in the market. And there's nothing more to our witness than that. We need to shut up and stay home. 
If, on the other hand, there can be that death of the outer person, that fading away of his strength and domination to where the inner person of the spirit may begin to show, even though I am still physically alive, even though I have not physically begun to die, if that can be seen in me, that's what I want. I, some 45 years ago, I was preaching in a church in Georgia, a large congregation. I don't know, the building was maybe the size of this one, but it was packed out. And I was very young in ministry. And way in the back corner of the building, about four rows from the rear and about three seats or four seats in from the wall was an elderly woman, just a plain farm woman, probably in her 70s. No cosmetic, just a plain face. But while I was preaching, I kept, I'd look back at her, and this woman's face stood out above all the others. And I would preach and then look back, and her face was standing out more prominent than the others. And in several moments, I realized that what I was seeing was not just the face of that elderly woman, but I was literally, as I preached about the Lord, and as it was witnessing in her heart, what I was seeing was a glow and a touch of glory shining on her face. I am not exaggerating. I, I'm not stretching that at all. So much so, as I kept on preaching and stealing glances in her direction, there came the time that the radiance of glory that was on her face blurred out everybody in about four people around her, the width of four, four people. Well, I made up my mind that I was going to meet that woman. I wanted to know, what, what has happened to you? What is there in you that is in apparently no one else in the congregation and that I had never seen in any congregation? And so when she came out the door, I asked her, I said, may I visit with you? And she said, yes. And I went that afternoon, talked with her, found, first of all, that she was a woman who had experienced great, great tragedy. Now, may I tell us all first that tragedy does not produce that. If that were so, all of us would be shining. It was not tragedy that caused it. But she told me the tragedy, and then she told me <laughs> how in tragedy, in the death of her son, she had pressed into God. She had sought God. She had turned to God with a desperation and with a hunger. And I never told her about what I had seen. But she had pressed into God with a yearning for deeper relationship with Him and a more intimate knowledge of Him. And the more she talked about God and her pressing in and the yearning of her heart, then I could begin to understand what it was that had happened in her. And I knew nothing about this, mess, this example I just gave of the autumn leaves. The only thing I knew was there was something glorious in that woman's face. Then it wasn't long after that. I was back in Atlanta, and I was sitting in the congregation, and I was listening to a dear pastor preach, a godly elderly man, a man who, a dear Baptist pastor, had gotten baptized in the Holy Spirit and didn't know it. He really had. He didn't have a name for it. But he was another one who had pressed into God. At any rate, 
I, I was sitting in the congregation and I suddenly saw a glow on him, a radiance. And now you understand something. If anybody accuses me of teaching something occult, I'll personally tie you to the ground. I am not talking about something occult. I'm talking about the power of Almighty God. I'm talking about Christians who have gotten tired of just wearing Christianity on the outside. And Christians who want the death of the outer person. Christians who want the release of the Holy Spirit on the inside of them. Christians whose prize is Christ and Christ alone. Christians who hunger for God so much so that they're willing to starve the carnal nature until it's gone. And then the glory of Jesus begins to show. Oh, that dear pastor, not even knowing it any more than that dear elderly woman knew it, began to shine. And as he began to shine and preach about Jesus and preach, preach about heaven and preach about the glory of God coming into the lives of the saints and the saints of God experiencing heaven coming down their souls to greet and glory crowning the mercy seat. I saw Jesus coming out of him and I saw it with my own eyes. And I thought, Lord, I don't know how he got it. I don't know what brought him there, but I want it. I want it with all the yearning of my heart. I need that kind of a relationship with you, Lord. And then I came to understand in later years, finally about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, finally about the death of the outer man and the shedding off of the old carnality and the old green. And I want to tell you something. This is what real Bible holiness is. This Bible holiness is not putting more powder on your face. It's not wearing black. It's not looking like you just got baptized in vinegar. Holiness. Holiness is when the outer person, the green, has finally met its autumn. And as it has met its autumn and has drained out all that other holy beauty that has been there all the time is now finally released to come forth. Oh, church, let me tell you, this is what Christianity is all about. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. This is what the church is all about. The church is not our merely going and singing three songs and holding a nine-pound hymn book. It isn't that. Church is that experience of coming so close to God getting so near the power of the Holy Spirit that the man of nature cannot stand the fire and just like wax melts and falls off and the inner person of the Spirit is released to come forth. This is what the church needs. We don't need any more cosmetic religion. What we need are deaths. And of all the things that die... Ego dies the hardest. There is no heart arrest. No sudden stopping of the breath. Just the slow and painful grieving as ego feels its power leaving. But if and when it dies in grief, 
how welcome is that sweet relief. Oh, to see the man or the woman of the outer person melting and falling in the puddle around us and standing up in its place is that beautiful, beautiful inner person of the Spirit. This is what God wants. This is what the church needs. This is what sinners need to see. They don't need any more of cheap Christianity. They simply need to be brought face to face with the power of the Holy Spirit. How am I going to get that? How am I going to get that? Number one, you're going to have to fall in love with Jesus. Jesus, the lover of my soul. Wesley, <laughs> let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is nigh, thou, Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Raise the fallen, cheer the faint, heal the sick, lead the blind. But thou, Christ, art all I want. But we have the mistaken idea that if I experience Christ like that, I'm going to neglect my family, I'm going to neglect my job, I'm going to neglect my health, and I'm just going to become some kind of a mystic. No, that isn't what God's looking for. God doesn't want it. And people get worried, I'm going to become a, another religious freak. No, God doesn't want it anymore. He's got all he needs. <laughs> I'll tell you what God wants you wives to be. He wants you in the power of the Holy Spirit to be so beautiful before your husband and children that they find that love of Jesus irresistible in you. What God wants in you men, number one, is to kill that wretched, wretched, alien, wrong concept of manhood. I don't know how it is in, in Britain, but I can tell you in America, 99% of the American males have a false concept of manhood. God wants it dead. He wants men, yes, tall as me, 6'4", bodybuilders. He wants them so washed in the power of the Holy Spirit that all the green is gone. And what comes through the door at night is not a grouch, not somebody complaining about the supper burning. And saints even burn supper. What God wants is that man coming in and the gold in his life being seen. Huh. Can that be yes? I had an aunt who did it. She's been dead close to 50 years. But I'll tell you something. She was a good old shouting Nazarene. <laughs> she knew the Lord. I only saw her maybe once a year because we lived in South Florida and she lived in North Florida and traveling was not as easy then as it is now. I saw her only once a year in church. I want you to hear me. I didn't know. I didn't have saving grace at that point in my childhood. I was not born again. But I absolutely knew, I absolutely knew, 
when my dear Aunt Nanny reached out and put her arms around me, I felt God. She didn't even have to talk. I felt God. And my mother loved me, my grandmother loved me, all my other, they tried at least, all my other aunts and uncles loved me, but not a one of them do I remember like I remember that dear saint of God. What had happened to her? It wasn't tragedy because she didn't have that. She had just gotten into her closet of prayer and said, God, I'm not coming out until I'm changed. I'm not coming out until Christ has been released in my life. In effect, she said, I'm not coming out until the green is gone. I want it gone. I want cosmetic religion out of my life. I want genuine spirituality to rise uppermost in my life. I want the genuineness of Jesus. I don't care what the church sign out front says. God doesn't read church signs anyway. I just want that holy presence of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what I want. You know what that is? That's Christianity. Christianity is not memorizing the Westminster Confession, good as it is. Or the old 1689 London Confession of Faith, which was my stalwart of faith. Or some other catechism. That's fine, that's good, but you can do all of that and still miss this wonderful experience of the one thing God wants most in your life. Now, you know, you know this is true. Your heart's already told you it is. I could quit right now. You know that the inner person of the Spirit in you is not released like God wants him or her to be released. That doesn't mean you're going to lose your job at the bank or your school teaching job, or you're going to become weird and strange, doesn't mean that at all. But I'll tell you what it does mean. There's going to be a glory to come out of you, and a power to come out of you. Some of you know what happened to me. I've shared it several times. I had been preaching nearly 30 years, serving God doctrinally like I thought I was supposed to. I had my theology down good, and I was a good teacher of it, to teach my members and those under my care good, solid doctrine. But it left them where they were. I'll give you an example. Had a brother in my congregation in Florida back in my traditional days before I became strange. Brother in my congregation who was an alcoholic, a severe alcoholic. I took him from one detox center to another. That's all I knew to do. I didn't know any other way of helping this dear man. His 16-year-old daughter had run away from home. His wife had come to the absolute end of endurance and sanity with him. And she called me one day. She said, will you please come get him and drive him over to the state detox center at Avon Park, Florida? And I said, yes, I will. I went and got him. 
took him to the state hospital and took him in, told them why I was there. And the receptionist says, well, we're not going to keep him. We're not going to keep him. We have no paperwork on him. We did not know he was coming. There is not a bed available. And you should have called before you came. And we could have told you that and saved you the effort of getting over there. And I really got barked at good. And I told her, I said, well, it puts me in a very difficult position. I said, I can take him back home and have his 16-year-old daughter run away. Or I can drive off and leave him on your steps. I said, now, if you were me, what would you do? She looked around, see that nobody else was within earshot, and she said, if I were you, I'd drive off and leave him on our steps. I said, that's what I'm going to do. And I did. Anyway, I finally left that church, finished my term, served there seven or eight years, moved to Atlanta. That was in South Florida. Moved to Atlanta. That's where I met the Holy Spirit in a new way. I was a hard shell, hard line, meanest kind of Baptist. I say that lovingly, really. I'm grateful for my roots. But I want to tell you something. Roots, good as they are, are all below ground. We brag about our roots. Okay, that's fine, but what's above ground? What's up here in the sunshine? What's accomplishing something here in the land of the living? At any rate, I finally left Florida and about almost ten years later went back to that church and I was in the pulpit preaching when, to my utter amazement, who comes in the door and walks in front of me but a man who looked strangely like the one I had dropped off at the detox center. And I thought, that can't possibly be he. He's dead now. Cirrhosis of the liver has killed him. But about ten steps behind him came in a woman that looked strangely like his wife, plus ten years. And I thought... That can't be she. Nobody, no wife could live with a derelict like that man ten more years. But it was the two of them. So after, now understand, it's still in my traditional days. After the service, I went to him. I said, John, I said, and he looked healthy. I said, I want to know something. Tell me what happened to your old problem. And he thought a minute, and he said, Oh, 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 you mean my, my alcohol drinking? I said, yes. He said, well, pastor, he said it was like this. He said, after, I, after you left here, I went to a real church and got delivered. <laughs> and I had to agree he was right. Because in the beauty of it, after my encounter then with the Holy Spirit... 1977, 30 years into my ministry, things changed. They changed big time. I went back to the same little Baptist church in Florida I had served previously and preached for them on Wednesday night and shared my testimony. That's all I really did was to tell them what had happened to me. Told them about the young prisoner in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary that I had gone there to counsel when I was dying on the inside and so suicidal I could hardly drive my car safely. And how finally, after three months of sharing, he laid hands on me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it happened. They wanted me to come back as pastor, and I did. And that began one of the most wonderful revelations 
of God's power in myself that I could ever have imagined. I just, I'll tell you this modestly, but I tell you, since that man whom I'll not name, the prisoner, the inmate, the Ananias, who laid hands on me to be filled with the Holy Spirit, did that. I have now seen thousands of people, literally thousands of people, whose lives have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pastors, some of them, suicidals, drug addicts, homosexuals, people in witchcraft, every kind of life oppressive thing known to man. And I've seen them now by the thousands be delivered. Now, God knows I say this. I, I wish I didn't have to say it. I think what happened to me that day, and I'm still just as human as anybody, please know that. I think... What happened to me that day? I encountered a sudden winter storm that took all the green out, at least for a while. And something of God, and I didn't even have a theology for it. I didn't know how to explain it. But I began to see the Holy Spirit literally slam people to the floor. And I wasn't doing it. I know at that same church, we had a large group of wonderful Lutherans who began attending the service. And I love Lutherans. I love all believers. When their pastor found out about it, he got very upset. And when he found out that they were experiencing this falling to the floor, he told them, he said, I'm going. I'll prove to you that's false. And the night he came, he had on no clerical collar, just a plain open-collar sports shirt. When I gave him the opportunity for people to come forward for ministry, he was on the back seat where all the Lutherans were sitting with him, and he came down the aisle in a hurry. I honestly don't think I ever touched him. He was slapped to the floor. And when he went down, all the Lutherans came up. And I began to see God doing astonishing things. I think I told this, but I'm going to repeat it. I was at a church where I met a man who was an atheist, a Ph.D., college professor in the local university, whom we met at a wedding, and then he came to the service on Sunday. And it was one of those wonderful churches that had chairs. So when I got through preaching, I asked the ushers, I said, let's move out all the chairs. And that left lots of wonderful floor space. We're not going to stack up pews here, so don't panic. But that left lots of wonderful floor space. And at the end of the message, I simply went through the crowd laying on hands and God began laying them out. Now, I know people will tell me, well, God doesn't do things like that. And my answer is, don't dare him. You're welcome to. I don't advise it. At any rate, this dear Ph.D., atheist, college professor came to the service. And I saved him for last. And he was standing over kind of on the side of the building, and the rest of the floor was absolutely covered with the fallen. Some were getting filled with the Holy Spirit and laughing their delirious heads off. Others were getting delivered from demons and were growling and barking and making noise. And again, that scares people, but I'm sorry. It happened in the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus said, These signs will follow those who believe in my name. They'll cast out demons. I had a spirit of suicide cast out of me. I know it's real. 
So I saved this dear, dear brother for last. He, he taught philosophy. So when I got to him, I said, you're a philosopher. And he said, yes. And I said, well, the Greek for philo, philosopher or philosophia means a lover of wisdom. Yes, I love wisdom. And I said, well, then if God is real, you want to know it. And kind of in a mocking way, he said, well, yes, if God is real, I want to know it. And I said, can you say, God, if you're real, show me. And he said, yes, I can say that. And I said, well, say it. And he said, God, if you're real, show me. And I told him, I said, just wait here. I'll come back to you in a moment. I left him standing there, went on and ministered to some others, came back with God is my witness. All I did, if I even touched him, was to touch his cheek, and he was down, grabbing for the air. Twenty minutes later, he was still on the floor, great tears coming out of his eyes and puddling. And then when he got up, I went and I missed him, and I, I saw him at the rear of the auditorium, so I called him up, and I handed him the mic. I said, tell us what happened. Now, these are his exact words. He said, I found God. I found God. Handed me the mic, started away. I said, wait a moment. He turned back. I reached out, touched him again, and down he went again. This time he was longer on the floor, and I missed him. Then I left uh, the service. He was already gone. I went to Atlanta for a meeting there. And on Tuesday, our mutual friend called, and she said, I think you should know the follow-up of that account, that story. said he had ridden to church with me, left his car parked at my house, and said when he got back to my house, he was so drunk in the spirit he couldn't drive home. And she said, and then the next day, he went back to the church, got a tape of the message, listened to it, and fell out again. Now, why does God do that? Well, I tell you what God's real target is. He's after the death of the outer person. Our getting rid of the, the, the green of the ego and the dominating powers of it. And what God is wanting in your life and in mine is simply the release of his presence. These signs follow those who believe. They do not follow evangelists or pastors or teachers. They do not follow just heads of churches. They follow believers. I want to tell you this. First of all, you want the power of Jesus Christ in your life. If it isn't there, you want to get it there. How do I get it there? Same way some got it this morning. You get saved. You get saved. You ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. Then you ask the Lord to help you die to the green. And that's not a painful experience. 